the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. Those of you that are our guests today, we are so glad that you're with us. We are going through a book of the Bible by the name of John. It's really the Gospel of John, and I'd like to invite you to be a part of that study. And if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to John chapter 3, verse 22 through verse 36. But I don't want to just do a running commentary on this or a glorified devotional. This passage of Scripture we're about to address today is a passage that I believe will help many of you as you begin to share your faith with other people. I especially like for those of you that are heading into college soon or in college or in some measure are engaged in a world that has such a secular worldview that perhaps approaches Christianity from an angle that I'm going to share with you in a moment. And I'd like you to lean into this message because what I'd like to do is to show you from God's Word how that you could respond to that secular worldview that they have on an issue I'll share so that you could do it in a way that I believe would be very, very profound and helpful. I learned from Brett Tolman that there is a great New Testament scholar coming out of Trinity Seminary just, just outside of Chicago. This great Bible scholar, Don Carson, really cut his teeth early in his mission ministry before he went into college education in an area what we would call university outreach. He would be sharing the gospel on the university campuses. And some of you maybe could go back in those days and remember those conversations that you've had in the dorms and those times in life. Maybe some of you have had similar conversations in the past with others. But generally when they were presenting the gospel, there would be a pushback from that secular world. And the, the questions and the comments then were a lot different 30 years ago than they are now in many ways. Back then, the question would be on the historical data of how you know the Bible's inspired, and so you would then approach that by giving them archaeological truths, science and history, and all those things that you would help to prove the veracity of Scripture, which, by the way, is not a bad thing. It's very good. I'm very grateful that our church recognizes that, and we've got teachers in place that teaches it, and for you that realize how important it is for you to know what you believe, but also why you need to believe that in taking those courses. However, if we kind of put it up into modern times today, our college kids that are going off to these secular schools, and maybe some of you who have engaged conversations on the campuses of different places, or maybe even on, on the job or maybe on the airplane flight or something, the questions change a little bit. And see if you could remember a conversation that came like this when you began to talk about Christianity or maybe even just the whole concept of Christianity came up. Their question went like this. How can you, as a so-called Christian, worship a God who is so self-exalting and so self-centered as the God of the Bible, a God who is constantly pointing to his own greatness and constantly telling people that they should recognize this greatness and tell him how much you like to give him that greatness? 
Now, that wouldn't surprise me too much from the secular world. It would come back because for one reason, they're probably seeing and being aware of many megachurches that spend so much time on worship and the worship songs. And again, I'm not speaking against that. I'm just saying visually they see that. And most of those songs are how much we really love the Lord. So they begin to think, how can there be a God that would want everybody to worship them just like that? In addition to that, there seems to be an ever-increasing amount from the world today about me-ism. It's all about me. It's all about how I feel about it, what's going to make me happy. So they sense all of that. And so they begin to accuse God as some egomaniacal being up there, and they really struggle with that, and they kind of put that down. So what I would like to do today is not so much address the issue of science and history, archaeology, and those types of things. I would like to approach the fact of who is God and that why he should be worshipped the way that he is. And so I'd like you to kind of track with me during the message today. And you're going to have a little outline that you can follow when you do that. Those of you that want to go a little bit deeper, let me kind of tell you where I'm going so you can see it subliminally through the message. I'm going to show you how that you can see just from this passage alone that Jesus Christ is God and God is Jesus Christ. We'll talk about the deity. The other thing I'm going to show you from this passage is going to be the concept of the Trinity. While the Word won't be in the passage, I want you to see that we're looking at the Godhead being God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all three in one. And we're not following this egomaniacal type of God up there. In fact, here's one reason. First of all, according to 1 Corinthians, it tells us that everything that we have, we've received from Him. That He is the author of all that we would have that would be given to us. And so I look at that and I say, how can I ever go back to him and then boast, this is who I am, look at how great I am. Everything I have has been given to me by God in some measure. And if you would be humble and honest enough, I think you could look and say, you know what, it is true. Nothing really did happen by chance and I couldn't, can see that God is in control and he is the source and what I have has come from him. The second is a little bit more deeper and it goes like this, that our God has a right to demand our worship not because he needs that worship. It is true, he is supreme, he is superior, but he is also sufficient. That means all that there is, all that he would ever need is all found in him, so there are no needs. So for him to be worshipped by us is not to fulfill some ego need that God has. Actually, when we worship him, it is for our betterment when we do that because of what we get out of that. So while it is not all about us, it is about Him, but it's about Him providing for us in the person of Christ that which gives us the satisfaction to our soul even when we worship. Now, I don't always want to go back to experience. The Word will teach you that. We'll see that in a moment. But some of you that have now entered into a joyful time of worship to the Lord, when you know that you've taken care of the sin in your life, you confessed that, you made the commitment to forsake it, and you are now worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. Isn't it not true that there is an inner benefit that you almost cannot describe that's happening within you? I don't mean some kind of ecstatic words in another language or something. I'm just talking about that inner sense of what we might say, the presence of God as you are intimately communing with Him during that time. There's that special time with you. And that happens when you see that with the Lord. Now what we're going to do is we're going to look at the story here, a real story, of a person in the Bible known as John the Baptist. A few weeks ago, I went over a biographical sketch on John the Baptist, and I covered a little bit of this in there. I threw it into his biography. Today, I wanted to go back to that. This is not the same message rewritten. There was so much in that that talked about Christology and Trinity and why we can really worship him that I wanted to open this up because some of you who have even questioned, you've asked me, you said, I've been talking to someone who's knocked on my door about, is Jesus really God? Or there is Jesus really just the Son of God. Or He's a mighty God, but not the Almighty God. 
And based upon what you're dealing with in life, I care for you. I want to equip you with what God already says and how you can really trust that God is who he really claims to be. Now, what you're going to find with John the Baptist is, I believe, he was kind of like the last Old Testament prophet that's in the New Testament. And so God spoke to us through the prophets. And once the prophets were done, and that's John the Baptist, then he had Jesus Christ to continue to speak to us. And we see that in Hebrews. So what happens is you're going to find John the Baptist is the one who is going to overlap from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The Old Testament spoke a lot about the law, keeping the law. By looking at the law, you'll see that you're a sinner. You cannot be perfect to go to heaven. And you need a forgiver in your life, a savior, a Messiah, who would be the one that would take care of your sin problem. Then you get into the New Testament. We're under grace. And so the bridge between the Old and the New Testament is John the Baptist. You have the bridge between I'm outside of Christ and lost, and by coming into Christ, I have eternal life. Who is the bridge? Who is the one that's pointing us to Christ? We've already studied that. John the Baptist talking to these guys over here. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, he's doing this in the context, though, of it's all about Jesus, and it's not about us. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open them up now again to John chapter 3. And we're going to cover a passage of Scripture that you might want to jot down some notes that might help you understand where we're going. This passage could actually be divided into just two topics. And if you just get these two, you can then do your own homework later on. One would be called John the Lesser. And you'll find that almost there in the middle of the passage where he says in verse 30, He, meaning Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. So John would be the lesser. And Jesus would be the greater, because if I'm to decrease and he is to increase, that would mean that he is the greater. Those of you that know a little bit about Scripture, you're going to find that Paul refers to himself as being the chief of sinners, or he's the least of everything. And then he looks to Christ and he sees him as the greatest of all. Now, let me go off on a little bit of a, a personal editorial here. I've noticed over the last four or five years, maybe it's longer than that, but for sure, for me, the last four or five years, that there is a little decal that you're seeing on various uh, cars today. You might see it on, on objects. And it, uh, it's basically the letter H, the letter E, so you have he. Then you have the mathematical symbol, which would be the symbol for being greater. You know how that is, kind of like a sideward V. And then you have the letter I. So you have he is greater than I. Let me ask you, how many of you have seen that symbol out there? Anybody seen that symbol? All right. Well, that's a good symbol. For those of you that haven't, what it's really implying is this, is that the Lord is greater than I. And so I want you to know it's all about Jesus. And that's really good. He is greater than I. I, I do want you to think a little bit more deeply about that little symbol that you have because grammatically it's, it's implying that he is greater than I am great. He's just greater than I am great. And we don't, we don't mean that. And so we're really not. He is not only greater than me, he is the greatest. He's the all-supreme, superior, and sufficient one, one that I will never be like. Now, I don't want to parse this and make you tick all these decals off, but I want to make sure that you even go beyond that decal to understand that it really is all about him, and it's certainly not about us. And so Jesus Christ is greater, but he is because he's the greatest. Well, to begin with, let's talk about how John is setting us up for him being lesser. And then we're going to talk about the greatness of the Lord. Now, I'm going to go through John being the lesser because we talked a lot about it. I'm going to do it pretty rapidly because I want to park down on five truths that you want to own here when you come up against someone who's questioning, is Jesus Christ really God? And why is it that he is greater? All right, let's begin, though, where John's saying he's less. Pick it up, if you will, at verse 22. And I'll just kind of rattle through this. You can just make your own notes in your Bible if you'd like. Verse 22 says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, uh, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. 
The after these things he's talking about, historically speaking, is he was in Cana. Remember, he turned the water into wine, and then he cleansed the temple, and then he spoke to Nicodemus. He did a whole bunch of miracles. So he's saying after those events, Jesus then went with his disciples into the land of Judea. Now, that was a particular portion outside of Jerusalem that's a little bit further south. And in the original language, it means he took them out in a, in a kind of a quiet area, kind of a desert area, not fully desert, but kind of a, a region that didn't have a lot of population. What you probably don't know, it says they went there spending time. In the original languages, they just didn't travel through that to get to their next location. Jesus took these guys and for perhaps many months was out there drilling deeply into their character, drilling deeply into their life, preparing them for their future ministry when they'd be called not as a Christian now, but called as a disciple, a true follower of his. And so you have that little period of time there that he was doing that. During that time, there was baptizing going on. We know Jesus didn't baptize, so that would imply that his guys that were with him were doing that. So listen carefully. Jesus was slowly beginning more of a public ministry at this time. Verse 23. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there. And people were coming and were being baptized. So if you will, look up here. There were basically two regions. Jesus and his guys were baptizing. John was baptizing in another area. So they both were baptizing at that particular time. The little caveat would be there was much water there. That's, again, why we believe that baptism is done by immersion, not just sprinkling. They wouldn't need a lot of water if they're going to sprinkle or pour. You would need a lot if you're going to put a person under the water, especially if there was a lot of people that were going to be baptized. And we believe that was the case. So you're, what you're seeing now is two separate ministries going on just about at the same time, all right? So that's, keep that in mind. Two ministries going on at the same time. John's and Jesus's. John the Baptist's and Jesus's. Now, verse 24, it says here, almost like an editorial, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. We could also say, nor was he beheaded at that time. Obviously, he wasn't in prison because he was out there baptizing. And obviously, he didn't have his head cut off yet because he was still baptizing. So that's the case. Now, why would it put it there? The only significant thing I could find would be this. When I was reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke... They did not talk about this particular time. They took up the life of Christ from the time that John the Baptist died, and then you see the ministry of Christ. This is John saying, before John the Baptist died, I want you to know a little bit of the pre-stuff that was going on to prepare Jesus for this big, massive ministry that was happening. So now they're going to tell you a part of the story here that you won't find in the Synoptic Gospels. This is very important because it's setting up where, where John is going to say, I'm least and he's great. All right, let's go on. Verse 25. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. So in other words, while uh, John was out doing his things and Jesus was doing his things, certain things were happening, a little kind of a powwow was happening with John's disciples about a particular Jew. Your translation might have plural Jews. Actually, it's a better rendition in the original language that it was a singular Jew about purification, which was a, a preparation for them to do some worship of a special cleansing. It was not found in the law. Verse 26, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. So here's what you're starting to see. You got John's disciples over here and you got Jesus' disciples over there. And John's disciples are starting to see that more and more people are coming over here to Jesus. Now that phrase, and all of them are coming to Jesus, I think is a... Is a is a phrase that they're using that's kind of exaggerating because I don't know what all the people were doing. I, I don't want to take out of God's word. Maybe all of them were there. But the point they're still making is look at how many people are going to Jesus. 
Now, why am I making an issue out of this? Because you're about to see the heart of a man, John the Baptist, and how does he respond when someone else is getting more credit, when someone else is doing something that's similar to what you're doing, but seems that more people are flocking and there's more results with it. So that's what's happening. So now, how does John respond to this? Look at what Jesus is doing there, saying he's over there and he's baptizing and all these people are coming to him. Verse 27, And Jesus answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. Now let me just talk about that little monologue he gave to his buddies. What he's basically saying here is simply this. Whatever I have as a ministry, I have because this is what God has given to me. I've received this from the Lord. This is what he wants me to do. And I really believe that was setting up for a future in the New Testament where Paul is talking about the division that was happening in Corinth when there was one person saying, I'm a Paul, I'm a Cephas, I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Jesus. And everybody was kind of arguing who had the better following at that time. And what he's basically saying here is, it's not about me. Whatever ministry I have is what God has for us. So let me speak to some of you people that have been here in the heritage days of our church. You know, this church was packed out. I met someone this week, had breakfast and lunch with him twice, invited him back again. He was here in the heydays when on Wednesday night alone, this place was wall-to-wall people. He shared with the men at breakfast that it was on a Wednesday night, just a simple Wednesday night. The six guys stood up at the end of the message, surrendering themselves to go into ministry. Since that time, he went to Bible college, he became a youth pastor, became a pastor, and now he's a regional director for Moody Bible Institute from that one night. So we could look back and look at the big heyday that that was here. And I want to tell you that I celebrate that because that man now is affecting a lot of people as others in that generation and as you that are still here from that generation. But we don't want to look back at that time. This is what God has called us to do. We want to exalt him. We want to clean ourselves, be right before the Lord. And we want to do what God wants at this time in our history that's here. Those of you that are going to go out in another ministry, it, may not, it might not be comparing what's been done in the past. You might be comparing what other churches are doing or other ministries that are similar to your ministry would be doing. Let me encourage you not to do that. Those of you who are businessmen, you might look at how hard you work and yet others seem to be growing and doing more than you are. Oh, you must remember that whatever God has given to you, if you've come to it with a clean and pure heart, seeking Him wholly to bring glory to Him, and you've done the very best you can with a clean conscience then whatever God has given to you, then you can say, this is what I've received from the Lord and I want to make sure I make full proof of this ministry no matter how big it is. I want to do what I can for this business no matter how small or big it is now or what it was before. I'm giving this to you and I want to receive it from the Lord. You know what you're really saying by that? You finally come to a level of maturity that you're saying, it's not about me. It is all about Him and so whatever He chooses to give to me, that's going to be fine. But you know, it's not just this, this kind of resolve to accept it. Notice how he goes a little bit further in the passage. This is beautiful. Look in verse 29. It says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. We already know that. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, in other words, the bridegroom saying something, he's going to rejoice greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Now let's pause for a moment here. So you have almost like a best man that's coming, but often that best man would be bringing the bride through the little community there to where the bridegroom is. And when the bride would come, he's now listening to the voice of the bridegroom. Now, I don't know exactly here in this passage what that bridegroom would say. 
But I can tell you the many weddings that I've privileged to perform, when that groom sees his bride for the first time, it's almost like one of these. <gasps> because I mostly see these brides are dressed so differently than they normally would when they're on the island. How many know what I mean by that? Say, uh-huh. So they look at, this is so, she's so beautiful, her hair is on, makeup is just right, the dress fits just perfectly, the beautiful setting here on the island, and there she is. And usually I joke to him and I say, she is stunning, isn't she? Yep, and you're stunned, aren't you? And he said, yep. Well, here's where we're going with that. He loves to hear the voice of the bridegroom basically saying, this is my bride in whom I am well pleased. And so the next part of the verse is the key. Here it is. The last part of it. Watch it. It says here, so this joy of mine has been made full. And so you and I are kind of like that friend of the bridegroom. We're not Jesus. And yeah, I know we're part of the bride because we're the bride of Christ. But if you step away from that for a moment, we have the privilege of communicating the message of salvation to those who are lost. And we have the privilege of guiding them to Christ. And Christ obviously does the saving part of all of this. But we step back because it's not about these people that we're trying to reach. It's all about the Lord who we want them to know and to worship. So our joy comes from the connecting of those lost people to the Lord for them to bring glory to Him. This is so key. I hope your motive to win people to Christ is not driven solely by, I don't want people to go to hell. Now that is a motive, and it is biblical. And we surely don't want them to go to hell because hell is a horrible place to spend eternity separated from God, condemned. But... I think a better motivation would be simply to say, I want that person to fully worship God because when they fully worship God, then they're going to have the completeness of Christ within them experientially at that time besides fire insurance when they die. They can experience that closeness to the Lord now, not just, I'm saved and I'll just wait until I die to really get the icing on the cake. I can really experience that closeness to the Lord. And that's the fullness of joy. But to do that, we step aside and we're bringing them to Jesus Christ. And so that's what he was doing here, saying, listen, it's not about my ministry. My ministry is any way that where Jesus Christ would be glorified. All right, if you will, now he ends it by verse 30, and he says, I must increase, excuse me, he must increase, but I must decrease. And if you want to, you might want to just underline the word must. It is so emphatic in the Greek. It's like saying there is no alternatives, there's no options, it's not a little bit. It must happen this way, that he must increase and I must decrease. Now that's all I want to say about his spirit here, about how that he was humbling himself, realizing that he's worked very hard, he did not know he was going to go to prison yet, didn't know his head was going to be chopped off, didn't know any of that stuff. All he knew is he started a very humble beginning, helping people to be prepared for Jesus when he came. When Christ came, he began to point everybody to Christ, and when people flocked to him, regardless of the temptation of others now saying, listen, you ought to take some credit for yourself, look what's happening over here, you might need to kind of kick it up a notch. He said, no, 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 what I have is received from the Lord, it is all about him. Now, I could end my sermon here, and some of you would really like me to, probably, but I would like for you to meditate on that thought for just a moment. Are you at a point in your walk as a Christian to really say, it is all about Him? My job is for Him. My family and my role in my family is for Him. Even being a single and what I could do in my singleness for the Lord, I do for Him. Whatever, however I can connect, whether I go to school or whether I get a secular job, whether I'm in ministry or not, I want to come to the point that he must increase and I must decrease and I'll be more pointed. In what areas of your life now does he need to increase in and you need to decrease in? I, I don't know what it might be. And while you might do a little shopping list and see where those areas might be, I would like to encourage you to go deeper. Instead of just look at this list and that list, what needs to increase and decrease and all this kind of stuff, check your heart first. 
Is your heart saying, yes, he must increase and I must decrease. So that's my core value. Since that's my core value, now I'm going to look at the areas I need to work on. So it even goes deeper than that. Well, with that, I have to answer this question. Why should he be the one that gets all the glory? Why should it be not about me and about him? This passage will give you five of them, and you could own these five. Once you know this, you're going to get a doctrine of Christology here that will help you as you face the challenges when people begin to question, why are you a Christian and why would you give God all the glory? I mean, isn't he some kind of an ego thing going on a big trip? That's not the case. So let's look at it very quickly, all right? First of all, Jesus Christ is above all. Beginning in verse 31, and here's what you read. He is above all. It says, he who comes from above, referring to Christ, is above all. He who is of the earth, referring to John, is from the earth, and he speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Well, I decided to do a little homework on that phrase, he is above all, and I'm just of the earth, just in the book of John alone. Just John, the writer of this, not John the Baptist, just John, the writer of this, decided to record how many times... Jesus was emphasizing the fact that he is above all and that everything has come from God to us. I found that the phrase from heaven, above all, is found ten times in the Gospel of John. And the idea that what we have has come from the Father to Son to us, that's found 38 times. And so I want you to know that John, who wrote this, not John the Baptist is emphasizing that everything we have is coming from God who is above all and it comes from Him. So maybe you could ask yourself this question. Do I realize that even what I have today has come from the Lord? Now I'm going to be a little more pointed. Some of you might look at your education. Your education got you a job. Your job got you a promotion. Your promotion got you some money. The money got you the car, got you a house. Maybe while you're out there, you were attracting to some individual. So now you particularly got married. Now you're looking at your kids and what they have and what you're able to provide for them. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Thank you.